0: Section sixteen of the National Geographic Magazine, volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Battle of the Forest by B. E. Fornow, Part two. Having thus scanned through the traditions of unwritten history of the Battle of the Forest having seen some of the combatants in the struggle and learned something of their methods of conquering the earth and each other we may take a look at the condition of things on the north american continent as it presumably was in the beginning of historic times or within our century as far as occupancy of the soil by the forest is concerned we find that the struggle had not yet been determined in its favour everywhere while a vast territory on the atlantic side and a narrower belt on the pacific coast connected by a broad belt through the northern latitudes, was almost entirely under its undisputed sway, and while the backbone of the continent, the crest and slopes of the rocky mountains, were more or less in its possession, there still remained a vast empire in the interior unconquered. Of parts of this territory we feel reasonably certain, from strong evidence, that the forest once occupied them, but has been driven off by Aboriginal man, the firebrand taking sides with the grasses, and the buffalo probably being a potent element in preventing re-establishment. In other parts it is questionable whether the lines along the river courses, the straggling trees of the plateaus and slopes, are remnants of a vanquished army or outposts of an advancing one. In some parts, like the dry mesas, plateaus and arroyos of the interior basin, and the desert-like valleys toward the southern frontiers, it may reasonably be doubted whether abarescent flora has more than began its slow advance from the outskirts of the established territory certain it is that climatic conditions in these forestless regions are most unfavorable to tree growth and it may well be questioned whether in some parts the odds are not entirely against the progress of the forest temperature and moisture conditions of air and soil determine ultimately the character of vegetation and these are dependent not only on the latitude, but largely on configuration of the land, and especially on the direction of moisture-bearing winds with reference to the tread of mountains. The winds of the Pacific Ocean striking against the coast range are forced by the compression and subsequent cooling to give up much of their moisture on the windward side. A second impact and further condensation of the moisture takes place on the Cascade Range and Sierra Nevada. On descending, with consequent expansion, the wind becomes warmer and drier, so that the interior basin, without additional sources of moisture and no additional cause for condensation, is left without much rainfall and with a very low relative humidity, namely below 50%. The Rocky Mountains finally squeeze out whatever moisture remains in the air currents, which arrive proportionally drier on the eastern slope this dry condition extends over the plains until the moist currents from the gulf of mexico modify it somewhat corresponding yet not quite to this distribution of moisture the western slopes are found to be better wooded than the eastern and the greater difficulty of establishing a forest cover here must be admitted yet since the forest has the capacity of creating its own conditions of existence by increasing the most important factor of its life the relative humidity the extension of the same may only be a question of time temperature extremes to be sure also set a limit to tree growth and hence the so-called timber line of high mountains which changes in altitude according to the latitude if now we turn our attention from the phototopographic consideration of the forest cover to the photogeographic and botanical features we may claim that the north american forest with four hundred and twenty five or more abarescent species belonging to one hundred and fifty eight genera many of which are truly endemic surpasses in variety of useful species and magnificent development any other forest of the temperate zone japan hardly excepted in addition there are probably nowhere to be seen such extensive fields of distribution of single species these two facts are probably explained by the north and south direction of the mountain ranges which permitted a re-establishment after the ice age of many species further northward, while in Europe and the main part of Asia the east-west direction of the mountains offered an effectual barrier to such re-establishment, and reduced the number of species and their field of distribution. Nor are the climactic differences of different latitudes in North America as great as in Europe, which again predicates greater extent in field of distribution north and south. On the other hand, the differences east and west in floral composition of the American forest are greater than if an ocean had separated the two parts instead of the prairie and plains. This fact would mitigate against our theory that the intermediate forestless region was or would be eventually forested with species from both the established forest regions if we did not find some species represented in both regions and a junction of the two floras in the very region of the forestless areas. In the sand hills which traverse Nebraska from east to west, there are now found in eastern counties the sand-drowned trunks of the western bull pine, and the same pine belonging to the Pacific flora is found associated with the black walnut of the eastern region along the Niobrara River. We may, however, divide the North American forest according to its botanical features into two great forest regions, namely, the Atlantic, which is in the main characterized by broad-leaved trees and the pacific which is made up almost wholly of coniferous species in the atlantic forest we can again discern several floral subdivisions each of which shows special characteristics the southernmost coast and keys of florida although several degrees north of the geographic limit of the tropics present a truly tropical forest rich in species of the west indian flora which here finds its most northern extension. There is no good reason for calling this outpost semi-tropical, as is done on Sargent's map. With the mahogany, the mastic, the royal palm, the mangrove, the sea-grape, and some sixty more West Indian species represented, it is tropical in all but its geographic position. That the northern flora joins the tropic forest here and thus brings together on this insignificant spot some hundred species nearly one quarter of all the species found in the atlantic forest, does not detract from its tropical character. On the other hand, the forest north of this region may be called subtropical, for here the live and water oak, the magnolia, the bay tree, and the holly, and many other broad-leaved trees, are mixed with the sable and dwarf palmetto. As they retain their green foliage throughout the winter, this region is truly semi-tropical in character, and under the influence of the gulf stream extends in a narrow belt some twenty or thirty miles in width along the coast as far north as north carolina while this evergreen broad-leaved forest is more or less confined to the rich hummocks and moister situations the poor sandy soils of this as well as of the more northern region are occupied by pines and as those especially the long-leafed pine are celebrated all over the world and give the great mercantile significance to these forests this region may well be called the great southern pine belt north of the evergreen subtropic forest stretches the vast deciduous leaved forest of the atlantic nowhere equalled in the temperate regions of the world in extent and perfection of form and hardly in the number of species this designation applies to the entire area up to the northern forest belt for the region segregated on the census map as the northern pine belt is still in the main the dominion of the deciduous-leaved forest on certain areas pines and spruces are intermixed and on certain soils especially gravelly drifts and dry sand plains as on the pine barrens of northern michigan they congregate even to the exclusion of other species instead we can divide this deciduous-leaved forest by a line running somewhere below the fortieth degree of latitude wherewith the northern limits of the southern magnolias and other species we may locate in general the northern limit of the southern forest flora northward from here in what may be called the middle atlantic forest the deciduous species rapidly decrease and the coniferous growth predominates until we arrive at the broad belt of the northern forest which crosses from the atlantic to the pacific and composed of only eight hardy species takes its stand against the frigid breath and icy hands of Boreas. Abounding in streams, lakes, and swampy areas, the low divides of this region are occupied by an open, stunted forest of black and white spruce, while the bottoms are held by the balsam, fir, larch, or tamarack, poplar, dwarf birch, and willow. The white spruce, paper or canoe birch, balsam, poplar, and aspen stretch their lines from the Atlantic to the Pacific, over the whole continent. On the Pacific side, the subdivisions are rather ranked from west to east. While the northern forest battles against the cold blasts from icy fields, the front of the Pacific interior forest is wrestling with the dry atmosphere of the plains and interior basin. Here on the driest parts, where the sagebrush finds its home, the ponderous bull pine is the foremost fighter. And where even this hardy tree cannot succeed in the interior basin several species of red cedar hold the fort in company with the nut pine covering with an open growth the mesas and lower mountain slopes small and stunted although of immense age these valiant outposts show the marks of severe struggles for existence on the higher and therefore moister and cooler elevations and in the narrow canyons where evaporation is diminished and the soil is fresher the sombre douglas Engelman and blue spruce and the silver-foliaged white fir join the pines or take their place with few exceptions the same species only of better development are found in the second parallel which occupies the western slopes of the sierra nevada additional forces here strengthen the ranks the great sugar pine two noble firs a mighty larch hemlocks, and cedars vie with their leaders the big sequoias in showing of what metal they are made the third parallel occupied by the forest of the coast range the most wonderfully developed although far from being the most varied of this continent is commanded by the redwood with the tide-land spruce hemlock and giant arborvitae joining the ranks broad-leaved trees are not absent but so little developed in comparison with the mighty conifers that they play no conspicuous part except along the river bottoms where the maple cottonwood ash and alder thrive and in the narrower interior valleys where an open growth of oak is found toward the south and on the lower levels these broad-leaved trees again become evergreen as on the atlantic side but of different tribes and form a subtropic flora along the coast we find several species of true cypress including the well-known although rare monterey cypress which clings to the gigantic rocks and braves the briny ocean winds and with its branches twisted landward finally flanking the battle order of the pacific forest we find another section of the army composed of the northern extension of the mexican flora mingled with which are species from the pacific forest on the west and from the atlantic on the east the mesquite and some acacias the tree yuccas and the giant or tree cactus are perhaps the most characteristic and remarkable species of the deserts of this region while the high mountains support dense forests of firs and pines. So far we have considered the forest only from the geographic and botanical point of view, and have watched the history of its struggle for existence against the elements and against the lower vegetation and other forces of nature. A new chapter of its life history, which we shall have time only to scan very briefly, began when man came upon the scene and the economic point of view had to be considered. For ages man has taken sides against the forest. Not only has he contested for the occupancy of the soil, in order to cultivate the crops or make the meadow for his cattle, a most legitimate and justifiable proceeding, and not only has he utilized the vast stores of wood accumulated through centuries for the ten thousand uses to which this material can be applied, and in the application of which he exhibits his superior intelligence. But he has also shown woeful lack of intelligence in the willful or careless destruction of the forest without justifiable cause, and by just so much curtailing of the bountiful stores provided by nature for him and his progeny. Not only has he, like a spendthrift, wasted his stores of useful material, but more he has wasted the work of nature through thousands of years by the foolish destruction of the forest cover, wrestling from it the toilsomely achieved victory over the soil he has destroyed the grasses and even all vestige of vegetation and has handed over the naked soil to the action of wind and water as the fertility and agriculture of the plain is dependent upon the regular and equable flow of water from the mountains such as a forest cover can only secure he has by bearing the slopes accomplished in many localities utter ruin to himself and turned them back into inhospitable deserts as they first were before the struggle of the forest had made them inhabitable one would hardly believe that certain mountains in France had ever seen a luxuriant forest growth, and could during historic times have been so utterly despoiled of their vegetal cover. Yet axe, fire, and cattle have been most successful, and the consequences have been felt not only in the mountains, but in the valleys below. The waters in torrents have brought down the soil and debris, covering out of sight the fertile fields of thousands of toiling farmers, they themselves have brought this ruin upon them on account of their ignorance of the relation of forest cover to their occupation. Now, with infinite hard work and expenditure of energy and money, the slow work of restoring the forest to its possessions has begun. The first work is to take care of the rain-waters, and by artificial breaks turn them from rushing torrents over the bare surface into a succession of gentle runs and falls by fascine and stone-works this work must be begun at the very top of the mountains at the very source of the evil where the water receives its first momentum in the descent to the valley the fascines or wattles laid across each rivulet at more or less frequent distances from each other and fastened down by heavy stones are made of live willows or other readily sprouting species which in course of time strike root and become living barriers the pockets behind these breastworks gradually fill up and the contour of the mountain-side is changed from an even and rapid descent into a series of steps with gentle fall over which the formerly rushing waters gradually and without turbulence find their way to the valley below where the incline is too steep and higher breastworks are necessary they are made of masonry sometimes at great expense at the base of these overflow dams an opening is left for the water to drain through even after the depression behind the rampart has filled up with debris and soil has washed down from above then when in this way the soil has come to rest forest planting begins and gradually the torrent is drowned in vegetation sometimes where on a steep mountainside the naked rock alone has been left it becomes necessary to carry in baskets the soil to the trenches hewn in the rock where the little seedlings may take their first hold until they are strong enough to fight their own battle and make their own soil gradually restoring the beneficent conditions which nature had provided before the arrival of man and his senseless improvident self-destructive greed by the irrational destruction of the forest first for the supply of timber then through the careless use of fire by the clearing for unsuitable farm use by excessive grazing of sheep and goat the mountain-sides themselves are not only devastated and made useless, but fertile farms for two hundred miles from the source of the evil are ruined by the deposit of the debris and the population pauperized and driven from their homes. Many millions of dollars have been, and many more will have to be spent before these regions become habitable again. On plate seven are shown various views of these processes of afforestation as now practiced in France that we are working in this country toward the same conditions is too well known to need rehearsal go to the shores of lake michigan or visit the coast of new england new jersey pennsylvania down to the gulf and you can see the destructive action of the shifting sands set loose by improvident removal of the plant cover go to the adirondacks the highlands of mississippi or the eastern slopes of the rocky mountains and aspects similar to those derived from france will meet your view Thus, McGee graphically describes the formation of the Mississippi badlands. With the moral revolution of the early sixties came an industrial evolution. The planter was impoverished, his sons were slain, his slaves were liberated, and he was fain either to vacate the plantation or greatly to restrict his operations. So the cultivated acres were abandoned by thousands. Then the hills, no longer protected by forest foliage, no longer bound by the forest roots, no longer guarded by the lark and brush dam of the careful overseer, were attacked by raindrops and rain-borne rivulets, and gullied and channeled in all directions. Each streamlet reached a hundred arms into the hills, each arm grasped with a hundred fingers a hundred shreds of soil, and as each shred was torn away the slope was steepened and the theft of the next storm made easier. So storm by storm, and year by year, the old fields were invaded by gullies, Gorges, ravines, and gulches, ever increasing in width and depth, until whole hillsides were carved away, until the soil of a thousand years' growth melted into the streams, until the fair acres of antebellum days were covered by hundreds into badlands, desolate and dreary as those of the Dakotas. Over much of the upland, the traveller is never out of sight of glaring sand wastes where once were fruitful fields. His way lies sometimes in, sometimes between gullies and gorges the gulfs of the blacks whose superstitions these arouse sometimes shadowed by foliage but oftener exposed to the glare of the sun reflected from the barren sands here the road winds through a gorge so steep that the sunlight scarcely enters there it traverses a narrow crest of earth between the chasms scores of feet deep in which he might be plunged by a single misstep when the shower comes he may see the roadway rendered impassable even obliterated within a few minutes, always sees the falling waters accumulate as visied brown or red mud torrents, while the myriad miniature pinnacles and defiles before him are transformed by the beating of raindrops and rushing rills so completely that when the sun shines again he may not recognize the nearer landscape. This destruction is not confined to a single field or a single region, but extends over much of the upland. While the actual acreage of soil thus destroyed has not been measured, the traveler through the region on horseback daily sees thousands, or tens of thousands, of formerly fertile acres now barren sands, and it is probably within the truth to estimate that ten percent of the upland Mississippi has been so far converted into bad lands as to be practically ruined for agriculture under existing commercial conditions, and that the annual loss in real estate exceeds the revenues from all sources and all this havoc has been wrought within a quarter century. The processes, too, are cumulative. Each year's rate of destruction is higher than the last. The transformation of the fertile hills into sand wastes is not the sole injury. The sandy soil is carried into the valleys to bury the fields, invade the roadways, and convert the formerly rich bottomlands into treacherous quicksands when wet, and blistering deserts when dry. Hundreds of thousands of acres have thus been destroyed since the gullying of the hills began a quarter of a century ago. Moreover, in much of the uplands, the loss is not alone that of the soil, i.e., the hummus representing the constructive product of water-work and plant-work for thousands of years. But the mantle of brown loom, most excellent of soil stuffs, is cut through and carried away by erosion and sapping, leaving in its stead the inferior soil-stuff of the Lafayette formation. In such cases, the destruction is irremediable by human craft. The fine loom once removed can never be restored. The area from which this loom is already gone is appalling, and the rate of loss is increasing in geometric proportion. What the farmer has brought upon himself here by excessive clearing, the lumberer, prospector, miner or hunter, prepares in the farther west by reckless and purposeless use of fire. Burnt mountainsides, where no living thing can subsist in comfort, cover not acres but hundreds of square miles in the western country. While the forest fire only deadens the trees or undermines their constitution, the second or third fire usually is sufficient to kill what remain alive and even to clean up the fallen timber. That these bald spots are not more frequent than they are is only due to the short period of our endeavors in disturbing the balance of nature. But as our nation prides itself on the rapidity of its development exercising the utmost of our constructive energies so do we excel in destructive and wasteful energies and tendencies and we shall come to grief with our resources much sooner than some of our happy-go-lucky friends would like to make us believe while these exhibitions of american vandalism are beyond the proprieties of legitimate warfare there is not much more propriety or intelligence visible in the manner in which we levy tribute from the forest for our legitimate needs. Forests grow to be used, but there is a great difference between intelligent and unintelligent use. Improvidence and ignorance characterize the present methods of using the forest growth. The value of it is not even known. Of the 425 or more species which are represented in the forest, not more than forty or fifty at the most are found in the markets, although to be sure, many of the species are of but little or of no economic value. The number of the truly useful trees is probably twice or three times as great as that actually used. Ignorance of the true value of them keeps many from little more than simply a strictly local use or from their most fit employment. The story of the black walnut used for fence rails or firewood is well known. Six years ago the red gum or liquid amber, now a fashionable finishing material, was despised ten years ago large hemlock trees were mouldering in the woods after the bark had been taken for tanning purposes because the value of the wood was unknown cypress and douglas spruce cannot yet overcome the prejudice of the market on the other hand cottonwood and tulip poplar not long ago among the despised or only locally used can hardly now be furnished in sufficient quantities and the longleaf pine which has been bled for turpentine was considered an inferior material which as has lately been shown is nothing but an unwanted prejudice in a vague empirical way the choice of the useful has been attempted and not only have we begun to systematically study our forest resources to determine the qualities and adaptabilities of our timbers and find out the conditions under which they produce not only the largest amount but the best quality of timber yet in another direction do the forest users act unintelligently as we have seen most of our forest trees are of a social character with few exceptions they keep company with other kinds than their own they appear in mixed forests hence except where certain species as the pines and spruits become gregarious and form unmixed pure forests the axe of the lumberer does not as a rule level the entire forest but he selects the kinds which he wishes to use he culls the forest at first sight this would appear rather an advantage for the existence of the forest so it is from a botanical geographic or landscape point of view yet from an economic point it is exactly the reverse it is disastrous this can be readily understood if we recall our story of the battle of the forest monarchs among themselves the struggle which each species sustains to occupy the ground man taking sides in the struggle by calling the best the most useful decides the battle for the least deserving leaving the advantage to the scrubs and inferior tribes and since these are left to overshadow the ground and to spread their own brood over the open spaces, the culled forest, while still a forest to the casual observer, has lost its economic value not only for the present but for the future also, for it prevents the reproduction of the better kinds. The intelligent forester also acts as a partisan. He also uses the axe, but to better purpose. Before he utilizes the kinds for which he wishes to perpetrate the forest, he culls the inferior and leaves the superior i e the most useful races he gives direction and assists the most fit in the struggle for supremacy he substitutes artificial for natural selection assuring the protected survival of the most useful he hastens the destruction of the struggle by obviating if possible useless expenditure of energy by timely interference thereby securing not only a larger total and more valuable product for the present but a reproduction of only the best kinds for the future in the well-managed forests of germany the undeserving species are exterminated and the most useful fostered just as the agriculturist exterminates the weeds and cultivates the crop not only is the forest there confined to those soils and locations which cannot be used to better advantage, or which require a forest cover in order to protect the soil against detrimental displacement but it is so managed as to become a more and more valuable resource a crop of increasing importance under the management of skilled foresters of whom in a late debate on the floor of the landtag of prussia it was said that while most other productive business has declined the forest administration has steadily improved and yielded increasing revenues in figure one is shown one of these protected german forests of spruce as they grow not planted but naturally regenerated by skillful management and the use of the axe the battle of the forest in this country is now fought by man, the unintelligent and greedy carrying on a war of extermination without the knowledge that their victory may lead eventually to their own destitution, the intelligent and provident trying to defend the forest cover and endeavoring to prevent its removal from such lands as cannot serve a better purpose, and to restrict the use of the balance to such rational harvest of its material without injurious effects on soil and water conditions as will insure an ever reproducing crop and permanent national resource while man may study the geography of the earth as it exists here is about the only opportunity for him to make geography to shape the surface conditions of the earth and even to some extent influence its climatic conditions End of section sixteen.